Those of you who joined us at both of our conferences this year, the Achieving Optimal Health Conference at Georgetown University and at Gasparilla Inn learned about our MC Squared course. The Mindful Community Collective is a push to get leaders, companies, coaches, and individuals to use practical ways to heal loneliness and disconnection in our relationships, which we know impacts our physical health more than any other factor. We have built the eight-week experience on six core habits, such as deep listening, speaking your truth, and forgiveness. You can find out more about what we are up to at mindfulcommunitycollective.com. People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Aviva Ram is our guest today on Health Gig, and Dora and I couldn't be more excited. Dr. Ram is a midwife, herbalist, ecologist, a mother of four, a writer, and a Yale-trained doctor. She's also the author of seven books. She is an amazing woman, and she is a lifetime seeker with a rich 30-year journey along the path of integrated women's health. She's creating an incredible online platform to share with the world because her dream is that more people become educated, and they can take better care of themselves. Her mission is to empower others with tools to shift their health and reclaim their lives and to bridge the conversation between conventional and natural medicine. Dr. Aviva Ram, welcome to Health Gig. Welcome, Aviva, to Health Gig. Trisha and I have been really excited about this opportunity to talk with you today and to get to know you better. So welcome. Thank you so much. It's such a delight to be here with you. And I'm excited to get to know you too. We like to start at the beginning. And Trisha and I know a lot about you, but we want our listeners to know what we know. And we think you've had a fascinating life. And so just start at the beginning. We know you grew up with a single mom in mm-hmm. a housing project. Life might have been difficult. And so what motivated you? to start your path to helping women? I like to look back at some of the challenges that are inherent in my environment, you know, growing up, but I really see them truly more as gifts and resiliences that I learned from that environment. New York City Housing Project is an interesting place. First of all, I was not in the like gun and knife club one. I was in a more, slightly more tame one, if you will. There were definitely risks and challenges and economic and personal security challenges. But at the same time, we're a collective of kids who were always playing outside, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-backgrounded, kids from all over the world. And I think all of us had parents that were either single parents or parents facing economic challenges, but trying to, for the most part, do right by their kids. So in some ways, because our parents were working, my mom often worked two jobs, Yeah, there were times where it would have been great if she were home after school, but I also learned how to be really independent, really resilient, read my environment, be competent and independent. And so for me, those are skills that I have carried through my life that I really value and playing well with others and also just like an incredible amount of ease in connecting with people from all kinds of backgrounds, walks of life, economic statuses. And an incredible understanding. So for example, when I was a physician in training at Yale, 
I remember sitting in a group of us talking about, you know, we would get together and decompress about some of the challenges we were experiencing. And I remember one white male medical student saying, oh, I wish those people would just figure out how to help themselves. And I was explaining, first of all, they're not those people. We're all people and we're all doing our best. But to grow up in a certain environment, you are inherently almost taught that there aren't more opportunities for you, that you don't have control over your life, that you don't have agency. I think it's also given me a lot of understanding of where people come from with disparate political and social expectations and beliefs and challenges they face. For me, however, at the same time, it wasn't an environment that I wanted to spend my life in. And for whatever reason, the constellation of my family background, I'm not sure what my own internal drive. I was a really smart kid. I was that spelling bee and science fair kid (laughs) and a good communicator and had opportunities based on my own privilege in that environment to excel out of that environment. So I used those faculties and capacities and strengths to actually apply to college at 14. Wow. And got, yeah. And I knew (laughs) I wanted to be a physician. And honestly, I wanted to be a physician more because of my intense passion for science and nature and the human body. It wasn't like I was 14 and someone who was like, oh, I want to save the world and make all this difference in people's lives. I had that, but it was really this inner drive to learn and know and this really deep curiosity. Then when I went off to school at 15, so I got accepted at 14, started the September of I was four, 15 and three months. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's when I got exposed to a broader understanding of women's health, the history of women's medicine, the marginalization of women, the marginalization of women of color. So in 1981, when I was in college, for example, at 15, you combine college and an idealistic teenager, and then you are going to have somebody who's, I'm saying, I'm going to save the world. I'm going to change all these things. But at that time in 1981, it was actually still legal in California, and I'm sure several other states, but I know California, to sterilize black and brown women at the time of birth without consent or prior knowledge of the woman. So a woman would wake up from a C-section, black or brown woman would wake up from a C-section and find out that she had had her tubes tied or had a hysterectomy. And these were the kind of things that really got me inspired to be maverick, be politically and socially aware to make a difference and to pursue the science and human body and nature stuff that I loved. And that's what led me down the path. So I started out going to college to be a physician. And then within one year, I was apprenticing to an African-American midwife in Roxbury, Massachusetts, who was and still is considered a leader, not just in midwifery in the nation, but also one of the preeminent women who identifies herself as a leader in the Black maternal health movement. And she is. She's a midwife and a master's in public health. I'm Shafia Monroe. One thing led to another. I spent all those two and a half decades as a midwife writing books, but ultimately felt like it wasn't enough to be outside the system. And in fact, in the state that I was living in, Georgia, midwifery was and still is illegal Mm. in spite of the fact that it has the highest maternal and infant mortality rates in the country. And particularly for Black women, there are over 90 counties in the state of Georgia that have no obstetric care, 
whatsoever, no prenatal care, no birth, no hospital, nothing. So that's where I was living for the large majority of when I was practicing midwifery. In the past, I would say 10 years and less, even five years, talking about probiotics or adaptogens or herbal medicine or integrated medicine, or my body has gotten very vogue and that's wonderful. But when I started on my path, my family, literally, my family asked me if I had joined a cult because I was changing my diet (laughs) and all this stuff. And so when I went back to start on the path to becoming a physician, it was really because there was so much, it was a dichotomy, right? It was as as disparate as political parties are in this country, medical beliefs and sort of more holistic beliefs were so divided. And so I wanted to be able to go into the medical system and be there for people who had the integrative or alternative approach, but now found themselves with a situation where they did need to interface with the medical model. And also really saw that for me to change healthcare at a bigger level, I needed to be be at once fluent in that language and to a bit of a Trojan horse. And so I did. I went back to school with now with four kids and got my MD at Yale, kept writing books, you know, since then have been doing my own private practice, writing more books and now expanding my online platform to teach women. I'm a strong believer that part of how healthcare changes is through economic force. Like there weren't really very many OBs back in the earlier days who said, oh, let me get midwives in my practice because they're so great. It was more like, I better get midwives in my practice because women are going to them in droves and I'm going to lose my business if I don't. And that's just how it works. So really educating women about the things they need to do to take back their health and the things they can do, that they're going to their providers and asking for something different to start to create a sea change But also I'm in process of creating more professional curricula, particularly around maternal health and birth justice that can be taken into medical training programs to change how things are done. So that's the very long story. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I know. And you sort of passed through that you went back to med school having four children. That was kind of a big deal. How old are your children at the time? They were 11, 13. 16 and uh, 19. Wow. So did you go back to school full time or did you? Oh, yeah. I had to go back because I went to college at 15. I had left high school at 14. So I had to go back because I left at 16 to apprentice. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I may actually be the truly literally the only person in the United (laughs) States that went to medical school and certainly to an Ivy League medical school that never took an SAT and didn't graduate high school. I didn't do either. <laughs> so I had to go That's back amazing. and do wow. my undergrad, my pre-medical prereq. So I did those part-time. In fact, one year I spent doing physics. My son was in college. So we decided to do physics together for a year, which was hilarious. That was really <laughs> funny. And one day, one day, because I looked really young for my age too. And one day, one of the guys in class came up to my son and said, hey, can I have your sister's phone number? <laughs> That's my mom. That's my mom. But yeah, so I did. And I would say I went from being a homeschooling mom to being in medical school and med school. Y'all, it is full time, full in. The first couple of years, it's interesting. I was at Yale and Yale has a real respect for learners and adult learners, the med school. The way Yale is set up, people might not want to know this if they hear their doctors from Yale, but we have no exams except one exam per class at the end of each semester because they figure, look, if you got in here, you know what you're doing and you're like hardcore enough to learn the stuff. And if you pass the test, you pass the test. They also had it so that if you 
knew the material, you didn't have to come to class. And I found that if I read the material ahead of time, then sitting in class was a little redundant for a lot of the classes. And if I hadn't read the material, class was you're lost. So I basically read the material and I would pick which faculty were just like, you can't miss this class. And so I was running home to do a couple of hours of homeschooling with the kids and going back. And then by the time I hit my clinical years, third year and fourth year of med school and then residency, it was like, see you mom. And I tried to be as present as I could, but I will say it's really hard. It's hard to be a working mom. All moms are working moms, but it's hard to be a mom who is working outside the home and still trying to hold it down. And I think that as much as cultural expectations have shifted, where we know that women are working women in certain communities, most women are working women and a lot of them are single moms too. But there's still a lot of judgment. When my husband worked full time and I was home with the kids, nobody ever came up to me and said, oh, he'd never be able to have this career if it weren't for you holding it down with the kids. But when I was in med school, <laughs> people would say, oh, he must be right. amazing. He's home holding it down with the kids while you're in med school. And I'm like, right. WTF, seriously? And it's, it's true. It's true. I couldn't have done it without him the way it went. But the blame on the mom for not being present is so different than the blame on the dad. Mm-hmm. Whenever moms ask me about going to med school, I'm like, it's the best thing I ever did. And we're still mopping up the trauma and the blame. And there's still aspects of it that right. are a sacrifice, you know? But as you said, the gifts and the resiliency that you gained from your upbringing, your kids will also benefit from that as well. Absolutely. I have a question rewinding back to the midwifery part of your life. What was the number one thing you learned from being a midwife? So I think one thing is just really just this deep trust of our bodies as women and the importance of sometimes letting be and watching and sitting on our hands. And that doesn't just apply to birth, but sometimes we are so quick to hit send on that email or say something reflexively or reactively or make a decision without just stepping back and taking in the situation. And so I think just learning to watch and wait a little bit when we can, and also knowing when you have to act quickly. The ability to tap into our own inner resources as humans, but as women. So for example, having a woman who's just struggling with the pain of a contraction at that moment. I mean, there are times, of course, for me to be directive and say, here, you can do this, you can do that. But sometimes just reflecting it back, what does your body want you to do right now? And the the knowing that wells up when we listen is really powerful. I think there are other aspects too that are a little bit more political. Really seeing social injustice in action at times is quite intense. So situations where I've been a midwife transported to the hospital with a mom or as a midwife going through medical training and obstetrics, some of the abuses and injustices that as women, I think sometimes we don't know how to speak truth to power. And certainly when we're in vulnerable situations, when we're in labor or when our child is at risk, it becomes even more difficult. So the power of advocacy of women lifting each other up and also being there to advocate for each other is probably one of the other big pieces. There's so much kind of cultural mean girl trope, the idea that women were in competition with each other for scarce resources And really as a midwife, I saw that it it does not have to be that way. We can really lift each other up. And to midwife is to help somebody bring something out of themselves. And so how can we as women do that for each other? And I think that is probably another knowing for me. 
I've also learned just how much I can function on little sleep and then how much I'm so grateful to have that sleep now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All of these experiences, like you said at the beginning, really have, it's been a continuum, right? And you've been growing through all of this, just like our bodies are a continuum. Can you talk about like how all of this has created this mission for you and how you bring it into your practice now or into your books or into your teachings? For me, for whatever reason, I think we're all hardwired differently. And I think another lesson from midwifery and medicine is just to never judge someone else. You never know what someone's path has been, what journey they've had, what hardships they have faced. And I think for me, everyone is wired differently, right? Like some people are wired for certain kinds of achievement. Some people are wired to be figure skaters. For me, whatever reason, my wiring includes service. I don't feel as good in my own self when I'm just doing something for economic gain. And believe me, I like economic gain and growing up how I grew up. There's no doubt that when we are prosperous, we can help ourselves and help others in really spacious and expansive, wonderful ways. We can be even more generous when we have those extra resources and we're not living, you know, in like this Maslowian, just getting our basic needs met. For me, I combine my own passions because that's what keeps me really excited, which are always learning. I geek out on science. I've got a textbook right next to my desk here that I'm like geeking (laughs) out on a menopause textbook. So always learning, (laughs) translating that information into really accessible, non-jargon, understandable, actionable tools so that people can be more empowered about their own health, the things that they can do for their health or how they interface with the medical system when they do need it and still in the most empowered way. You can have a mastectomy Mm. and still feel empowered about it. So I combine that like my own inner passion because I feel like that fuels me with that love of service to really give a lot with my sort of communication savvy. I like to communicate. And so for me, communication is about giving, but it's also about listening. So I spend a lot of time reading my own social media comments a lot of time reading the emails that come into me and really hearing what are women worried about for themselves, but also for their children, because I do women's health and pediatrics. And where I'm at right now is that the way that I've been able to offer services and support is through creating a lot of free content, because one, not everybody can afford to pay for content. And so everything is actionable and free. It's not, let me give you this article to make you buy something. It's here's this article and you can really do everything you need right here. But then for women who want more, people who want more, I have courses, I have my social media page, and these are all ways that people can get real tools that help them figure out what's going on and take their healthcare in their own hands to the extent that they can. Books are another way. And then increasingly, the next focus for me is expanding my course platform and expanding mm. my, my medical practice. One of the challenges of growing up how I grew up so independently is actually learning how to ask for and take help. So growing my team is actually a, a bigger challenge for me, quite honestly, and learning how to do that. With the courses and books, when I say taking back your own health, what does that really mean? Just to give you a couple of examples. Endometriosis affects at least one in 10 women. We now know it affects girls starting in their teenage years. By the time we hit perimenopause, it's usually waning, but sometimes damage has been done from the scarring that can come internally from it. So it affects at least one in 10 women. In the United States, 
it takes up to nine years and multiple different doctors of a woman going from doctor saying, I'm having the periods from hell. Sex is painful. I'm constipated. I'm bloated. I'm depressed. I'm having other symptoms, anxiety, et cetera, and nobody getting it. So nine years of suffering. And then ultimately sometimes internal scarring that leads to other problems. What do we do about that? One, women have to be familiar with the language of their body. Two, they have to know what symptoms are normal and what aren't normal. And three, they have to be able to know how to approach a medical provider for a condition which has a set of symptoms for which women have been historically dismissed for decades, centuries actually, and then have all the tools and information. They may also need information that they can't get from their doctor. The fact, for example, that women who eat more fish and more fruit and vegetables have less inflammation and may be able to reverse a lot of the symptoms of endometriosis and prevent it from progressing, which we don't learn that in medical school. I had two 40-minute classes on nutrition between seven years of medical training, one that I taught and one that a celebrity doctor taught. And the first 20 minutes was him reading a poem. Not kidding. So seven years of medical education, five of those at Yale, two of those at Tufts, no classes on nutrition, let alone herbs, et cetera, et cetera. Another prime example is Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Thyroid disease is going to affect about one in eight women in the course of her lifetime. 80% of people with autoimmune diseases are women. 90% of people with Hashimoto's are women. It can cause weight gain, fatigue constipation, anxiety, depression, poor sleep, untreated. It can cause heart problems, cognitive decline. It can be really serious. And even just struggling with weight gain and you go to your doctor. I had one patient who went to her doctor. She had gained 30 pounds in three months, had not changed her diet, had not had any major changes in her life, had not changed her exercise, went to her doctor before she came to me. And he said, if you would just control your fork to your mouth, problem, you would lose the weight. And she had florid Hashimoto. So autoimmune diseases are another example. It takes a woman on average, five doctors, uh, sorry, four doctors and five years to get a diagnosis. So I wrote a book on how to understand what's going on with your hormone and what tests you need. And I have online content on that. So the next step is I do have a medical practice. I still see patients, but expanding that so that more women Because sometimes women will still go to their doctor with the tools and say, can you order this test? And doctors will say things like, where'd you get your medical degree, Dr. Google? It's such a thing that if you go online and you Google that, you can see like a mug with that written on it. That's really true. So you're there for people if they need to, just so that women can come to you. Yes. And not just me, but other providers that I've trained because I could never, the biggest question I get is Dr. Viva, can I be your doc? Can you be my doctor or can I find someone like you? And I could see patients 24-7 and never meet the need. And so it's, right. it's meeting the need directly, but then also changing the paradigm of having a medical system that believes women, listens to women. Sadly, and also thankfully, I think long COVID is going to be a game changer. Most of the chronic illnesses that are what are called invisible illnesses like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, thyroid problems mm. have historically affected almost only women or predominantly women. And they're the kinds of vague symptoms that we're told right. it's just stress, it's just anxiety, it's in your head, do this, do that, exercise more, meditate. 
long COVID is finally saying, hey, there's an immunologic something happening that's affecting people. And I think it's going to get us to start looking more at some of these other chronic illnesses that people have struggled with. So people don't feel so dismissed and and misunderstood. So you're saying with COVID, because it's a virus and there's lots of things that we don't know and things are happening in real time, we're going to focus. Yeah, we're going to start to say, okay, something real is happening. And if something real is happening here and we still don't know exactly Mm -hmm. what it is, let's rethink all of these. And I'm believe me, I'm not saying COVID is in any way a good thing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that one of the silver linings that comes out of it may be that we have a new perspective on this concept of invisible illness and this concept that something can happen. You can get a virus, you can get an environmental exposure, you can have a stress response that triggers something. And that Mm. maybe now that it's affecting all people or more people, women will start to be. Yes. Yeah. I have a question based on your book that you wrote about the thyroid adrenal problems that why are so many women experiencing thyroid and adrenal issues? Yeah. So I was just interestingly listening to our former surgeon general, and he was talking about how COVID has kicked America, kicked the world into a stress response. And so many people now are experiencing a lot of anxiety, depression, fatigue, weight gain, immune reactions through both the stress, the loneliness, et cetera, working from home with kids underfoot and trying to figure it out. And I I think if we look back at what women have been putting up with culturally, certainly it's not COVID, but it's been figuring out how to work with kids underfoot, how to balance work and childcare. We know that women are still doing the bulk of childcare and emotional labor, the emotional labor that women historically do at work. You sit around a board meeting and there's eight men and two women and somebody needs to organize the catering for the big event they're having and who gets asked to do it. It's like the woman who's got three kids at home, she may be the vice president of the company for all we know, but she's still going to be the one who says yes, because that's what's expected of us. So all of these multitasking myths that we have internalized are one big piece that cause us a lot of stress. Our hormones, as brilliant and beautiful and incredible as they are, also pose or increase our vulnerability to certain risks. So for example, we have over 80,000 environmental chemicals now that weren't here 50 years ago. And we know that many of those act as what are called endocrine disruptors, teeny tiny amounts that we get into our systems through our body products, through our foods, et cetera, et cetera. Because we are so primed to be sensitive to things like estrogen. And because these mimic estrogen, Uh they are setting off cascades in our body that affect our thyroid. They cause inflammation, which in turn affects our adrenals. So now we have stress, we have environmental exposures. And then importantly, because we go through cycles of our lives, particularly puberty, new motherhood, postpartum, and menopause, specific hormonal changes happen during those times that are internally demanding in that they reduce our capacity, for example, for fighting inflammation. They make us a little bit more vulnerable to inflammation. 
Now, a hundred years ago, we might not have had as many inflammatory exposures, but now we do. And so they affect our thyroid, mm. they affect our adrenals and specifically at those times in our life. So they're point being multifactorial things that we're being exposed to mm -hmm. that really affect women much more because of these unique things that on one asset, uh. on one aspect are like these amazing, practically miraculous aspects of being women, but then do set up for specific vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. So like hypersensitivity in a way. Yeah, we're just more sensitive. So for example, the shifts that we might experience in estrogen create noticeable changes in our breasts, in our ovaries, in our cycles. When we have more stress, we, and because we know, like we know from studies, but just simple studies done by, for example, the American Psychological Association, not only do women actually experience more external stressors than men, but we also tend to internalize or are more sensitive to certain emotional stressors. For example, here's a great study that was done where a woman coming home at the end of the, let's just say we're all back to work in our work offices, a woman coming home at the end of the day and expressing her daily stress to her partner does not measurably shift his cortisol levels. A man coming oh. home at the end of the day and expressing all of his stress to his female partner measurably alters her cortisol levels. Mm. And these studies have been done in heterosexual couples. I don't know of them in same-sex couples, so I can't speak to that, which also needs to change in how studies are done. But I think we've all had this particular experience where we have a, a spat with our partner before bed and we go to bed. And what happens? She wants to talk it out. He wants to roll over and go to sleep. Men are just more primed to be able to shut off some of that interactive stress. As women, because of our oxytocin, we're primed to connect. It's what makes us able to read our babies and children's facial expressions. But it also means that we're more sensitive to disruption in relationships too. So we feel all these things more. And when that happens, it sets off a very primitive, and I don't mean prim primitive in some kind of basic way. I mean, primitive, like this is hardwired into us from time immemorial cascade of hormones and events that trigger stress, but also affect our thyroid. Your thyroid is a little bit like a thermostat in your house. And when you are, you know, let's just, we're in, we're not in an energy crisis. You can turn the thermostat up as high as you want to. Your house will get really hot, but no consequences, right? Let's just say theoretically, but we need to be energy conservation minded. If we turn the thermostat up too high, we're burning too much fuel. So we want to keep that thermostat at, that doesn't make us feel overheated and doesn't burn up environmental resources. Your thermostat in your body, your thyroid once you start to burn more energy or require more energy due to stress, overwork, lack of sleep, et cetera, and this can happen if you skip too many meals too, it's going to turn the thermostat down and say, you can't keep this more than 68 degrees because you're going to burn up all the fuel that you have. And so it lowers the set point. And so we have less energy, our digestion slows down, our cognitive function slows down <sighs> a little bit. Our metabolism slows down. We're more tired because when we sleep, we're not burning up as much energy. And so it really, we really see it. Another thing that happens is when thyroid function is down, it 
lowers the function of the ovaries. So when we're in our reproductive years, we may not cycle Mm -hmm. regularly. We may not ovulate regularly. Our fertility may be turned down. When we hit our perimenopausal and menopausal years, that downturn in metabolism, we already know we want to keep that metabolism revved up when we hit menopause because we have some shifts there that may make us gain a little weight, but add thyroid to that, add thyroid to cognitive problems when we're already at risk of those as we get into our 50s. Lisa Moscone has done some really interesting research. She's now head of Alzheimer's research at, I want to say Mount Sinai or Columbia, but she is an incredible neuroscientist who has done research on the changes in women's brains in menopause. And we do experience changes as we go through decline in estrogen and those rebound. But if you add thyroid problems to the mix or cortisol from the adrenals actually changes the brain's functioning, the heart's functioning and the thyroid's functioning. So we become vulnerable to a lot of things like osteoporosis can be worse when we're under Mm. chronic stress. Again, cognitive problems, heart problems, metabolism problems, and also we become more at risk for autoimmune conditions. So we really want to take care of those organs, but we also want to make sure we're taking care of ourselves through good sleep and practices that reduce stress and help us stay really nourished. So say this is all happening and we are all under this collective stress of COVID. So as you're saying, we've got that, then layer it on our lives, then lay it on a woman's life, and then layer on everybody's particular challenges. We have to accept being human beings in human bodies, and we're not going to be at a functioning at a perfect 100% every minute of the day, every day. Right. And aging <laughs> is a reality. We do change with age and some of those things. I'm never going to not have a few wrinkles and gravity does what gravity does <laughs> unless I get a lot of, you know, treatments or something. But I think that (laughs) so much of the day-to-day wear and tear, that is something we can absolutely put a halt to. And some of the medical conditions that arise like diabetes or insulin resistance, even before we get to diabetes or hormonal imbalances, so much of that, especially if we catch it before permanent damage has happened, can absolutely. And I've had patients who we're on insulin and we're diabetic who don't meet the diagnosis of diabetes anymore. I've had people who struggle with fertility for years and tried everything who have worked with simple techniques like the kinds you all teach and I teach who have gotten pregnant without even with re- without reproductive help. It's hard though. It's really hard, as you say, to make the commitment. And as, as I was sharing with you before we started recording, I'm 55. I've been through a really intense 10 years on top of going to medical school and residency with four kids, which it was in its own seven years of very intense. And I, we had a huge business year last year with the book and pushing that to a New York Times bestseller with a team of three is no small feat. Medical practice, all the things. I realized in October that I needed to hit full stop. And I'm able to do that now. I've created enough insolvency where I could say I'm going to take two months and keep my business at a a bare minimum hum. And really, it wasn't about not working because I had to keep some things going. It was about not driving myself on the inside. It was about giving myself permission to wake up in the morning and say, you know what, if I get to my desk at 10 o'clock today, but I've had a bath or a long shower and a walk and read a novel for 45 minutes, then I'm allowed to do that. I really gave myself permission 
to pause, but in a much bigger way than I ever had. And I really felt like it took making an extended commitment. It's not enough to just take an hour here and there. If you're already burnt out, if you're preventing it, if you're feeling great and you're like, I just need to make sure I'm bringing more self-care into my life. Great. But I think most of us are at that point of like feeling a little crispy to already in it. We're already feeling the symptoms of it. And I found that really giving myself permission and I gave myself two months, ladies, I'm not going to worry about posting on social media every day. I'm going to post something I'm doing. I'm going to post something from my, my vacation. <laughs> I actually took a real vacation. I didn't bring work. I stayed off of my computer and social media and because I didn't even realize until I was off it for a long enough period of time, how much my brain was constantly switching, how much, mm. and I'm a really focused, very intense, focused person. I'm like, I'm somebody who could sit down to write at nine in the morning. And all of a sudden I look up at two and I like, didn't even realize I went <laughs> through lunch and hadn't paid and you know, that many hours. Cause I'm just like, so in it. <laughs> I'd sit down to write. And then I was like, Oh, I'm just going to check my Instagram post and see how it's going. And then while I'm in there, I'm just going to look at that little ad that just popped <laughs> up for this little net up thing. And then while I'm there, I'm just going to, you know, just all over the place and realizing that I had to completely jump off of that to reset my brain. And in doing that, what's been amazing is resetting some of the little sugar cravings that were creeping in or like, oh, you know, I'm just going to have that glass of wine kind of feeling. Now I don't have that anymore either. It's like my nervous system is back. I find that I'm, I'm talking more calmly. I'm sleeping really well. <sighs> I don't have to push myself to, to get my physical movement because I want to. And when I do, anytime that monkey mind, that's what I call it too. Anytime that monkey mind starts to creep in, I say to myself, nope, I don't have to listen to that. I can just be here in the present. What about the people that don't have the capacity to take two months off from their life? I didn't think I did either. So I will say that it was a feat to carve that out. But yes, if you are working full-time at a job and you don't have the control, you don't work for yourself or you just can't hit pause, how can you reframe? And I'm going to call it perfectionism or over-functioning. And for me, that's personally where I tend to get stuck. It's almost a little bit of an OCD about over-functioning or doing more than I have to. So I would say, can you pick a period of time, a week? I don't personally think a week is enough. Like even for a vacation, a week isn't really enough. It takes you three days to get into it. And by the last two days, you're already thinking about heading home. So really, I mean, if you can hit, pick 30 days, 28 days, where you say, what are the things that I absolutely have to do during this time and let go of everything else? What can I say no to that I don't really have to do right now? And really be honest with yourself. And how can I say yes to myself more? And then make sure that every day starts and in the middle has something and ends mm -hmm. with some more time than you would give yourself to just not just self-care, not just the meditation, but things that bring you pleasure. If it is reading a novel that you want to read, meditation is wonderful. I think it's really important. But if you're lost in a novel, your nervous system is a little, doing a little bit of the same thing. Can you get in a walk outside in nature? Make sure that you're eating well every day. But it's really about just taking that new approach to life of, letting go of some of the I have to's and the I should's mm -hmm. 
and being more mm. in the present and calm. Somebody said recently, I'm wondering what you think about this. What about let it be? I love that. And it's kind of back to like what I was saying, you know, when you asked me what I learned from being a midwife is we don't have to do all of it all at once. And what can I just feel okay saying, I'm not going to do that right now because I just, I don't actually have the capacity and it doesn't mean I'm never going to do it, but how can we just reframe our relationship? And I think one of the big shifts of getting older for me is also time has become more precious. So I find myself assessing my relationship to time. And am I always feeling rushed? Am I always feeling pressured? Am I always feeling like I haven't gotten enough done? Am I always feeling like I'm falling behind or failing? Am I always comparing myself to what someone else has accomplished? And so really reframing my relationship to time and how much I can actually take on at once. I have a six burner stove, but I don't have to have and a griddle. I don't have to have all of them in use at once. I can make a one pot meal. And so I was a little bit right, like now making the one pot meal. And I'm not saying it's easy. I have four kids. I know what it's like to do the juggle. But even within that, I watch so many moms to say, well, I can't because I have little kids. But I also think what role modeling are we giving those kids if we never create a life where we can take time just to be well and healthy and happy? I heard you say on another podcast something about adding in what nourishes us and removing what doesn't that can heal us. Absolutely. So it's a principle that I look at very literally in my medical practice. It might be, are there foods this person is eating that aren't beneficial for them? Or are they missing nutrients that they actually need? Sometimes it's not about taking away something, it's about adding in something. And similarly in our lives, I read a lot on Instagram about boundaries. You know, if this person isn't serving you, get them out of your life. And I think that's very limiting. I want to be a person who can create more compassion and patience and tolerance. At the same time, if you have people in your life who are draining you, sometimes it's about not spending so much time with them. If you have people in your life who are nourishing you, spend more time with them. I had a, when I was in my medical training, there was a much older gentleman who had been a psychologist, I think 40 years, and he had been married 40 or 50 years. And he said, if there's any words of wisdom I can give you young people. It's figure out what you love and do more of it and figure out what you don't love and do less of it. And somebody might be listening and say, yeah, that's easy for you to say, but I have to, I have this job and I have to do X, Y, Z because that's my role at this job. But even within that, there's some creative new work. You know, if you look at people like the work of Adam Grant, who are looking at how even at your job, can you be more innovative? And how can you go to your boss and say, I really excel at this because I really love doing this. And I think if I could do more of this or do it more this way, I will feel better and be more productive. And can I, can we hire someone to do maybe some of this? And even getting more granular, there may be people who have a job where it's just very much something that doesn't have room for that. Maybe there's somebody who cleans homes and it's not like they're going to say clean the windows, but not the sinks. How can you make it more engaging for you, whether it's figuring out what podcasts that you listen to? I say that with all due respect. I know it's easy for me as an entrepreneur and a physician to say that, but I'm also saying that as someone who was a stay-at-home mom with a husband who was a school teacher, 
And someone who grew up with a single mom who worked two jobs, it's hard. And we deserve to find ways to make our lives more well for us in whatever creative ways that we can. I I love what you're saying there. And I think that's, it's so true. And what came up for me as you were saying it is also being open to discovering what other joys could be there. I used to love to ski. Well, like right now, probably it's not a really good idea or racket sports or something, but maybe what else is there that we can begin to explore that can bring joy because we, our bodies do change and we are changing. What can we find that brings us joy? I can't remember who it was. It's someone who became a really famous poet. And I think he worked as a postmaster, but he would get up at five every morning and write poetry for an hour. Yeah. I mean, that's how I wrote my books. My kids would go to bed at night and, you know, I'd homeschool during the day. The kids would go to bed at night. I'd get that second wind and I'd, I'd write. And I get it that sometimes we're just too tired and we don't do it every night. But if you can find something that you're passionate about, and really trust it and explore it and invest in yourself. I really believe in that. What you're seeking is also seeking you. It's a roomy quote, but trust in that passion. Yeah. So what did we not talk about or what would you like to share that you think that our listeners would want to hear more about? I don't know why, but I think loneliness comes to mind right now, especially with the moment that we're in. How do we stay connected during this time? I think or just I guess I just want to encourage everyone to do whatever they can to stay connected during this time. I think there was a study called the Interheart Study. It was a little over a decade ago, and it looked at the impact of loneliness on women's health. And it was a multi-center study. It was almost 20,000 women and data was gathered from different centers, medical centers. And what the researchers found, and this is considered a very well done, highly validated study. What the researchers found is that for women, because it was done in women, that loneliness was more of a risk factor for cardiovascular disease than diabetes, obesity, and smoking combined. Combined. And we know for new moms right now, postpartum depression has escalated with the pandemic. We know that our elder relatives and people in our community were already often lonely and isolated. How can we stay connected, whether it's taking a walk in your neighborhood with your neighbor, if you can't get together with your family, doing these Zoom calls that we've all gotten used to, reaching out to people in your community and doing socially distanced outdoor things, whatever it is that you can do to keep yourself connected. Because here's another really important thing. I mentioned the hormone oxytocin before as a hormone that women have a lot of and that primes us to social connection. And we talked about cortisol. When we get lonely and when we're disconnected, our stress hormones go up. When we connect with someone else, our stress hormones go down and our oxytocin goes up. So we feel better. We feel more confident. We feel happier. We feel more connected to our community. We feel less lonely. But I think a lot of times we, particularly as women, don't want to burden other people with our problems. We don't want to be the complainer. We don't want to be the Debbie Downer, all these names that are ascribed to us. Here's what's really powerful. When you reach out to someone else and they respond to you on the other end, their cortisol goes down and their oxytocin goes up. So whether we become listeners to other people or we become those who reach out, obviously respectfully, we don't want to just dump on other people in the middle of their, something that they're doing but respectfully as we do as friends, but to not hold back on 
the fact that you might be feeling lonely or scared or anxious or depressed or whatever the feels are and to embrace all the feelings. Emotions are not, they're not a problem. They're just information. And if we can listen to those and connect with others about how we're really feeling, I think that's a powerful way to be healthier. Aviva, thank you for this amazing time and all these messages that you've shared with us today are so important. And we just thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is such a special connection. I'm so thrilled. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.